Hello and welcome to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. The subject of today's episode is one of the most reviled dictators of the 21st century so far. Bashar al-Assad has been the president of Syria since 2000, following the death of his father Hafez, who had ruled the country since 1970. Bashar's time in power has been overshadowed by the dreadful, grinding civil war that started in Syria in 2011 and is still ongoing. This has been no ordinary civil war. Starting in 2013, Assad attracted both the ire and the support of international powers, with the Western alliance putting increasing pressure on the regime to make concessions to the opposition, but Vladimir Putin's Russia seeking to gain leverage in the Middle East by keeping Assad in power. Putin was successful in this. Assad is still in charge in Syria, though his regime is a shadow of its former self. It is generally accepted that President Obama choked in dealing with Assad, in spite of promising to intervene in Syria if Assad used chemical weapons against his own people. When this happened, the Obama administration did not intervene, a terrible show of indecisiveness that fatally damaged the West's clout in the conflict. Obama's dithering is indisputable. What is up for discussion is whether he could have really affected the situation on the ground. My guest today thinks he could have. He is Jihad Yazigi, Editor-in-Chief of the Syria Report and Visiting Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. You'll notice that this is one of two episodes I've put out this weekend, the other being on North Macedonian Prime Minister Nikola Gurevsky. The reason I have decided to pair these episodes is because they show, in different ways and with different results, the consequences of the West neglecting people on the edges of their sphere of influence. There are clear similarities in the way the Western Alliance looked at Syria in the first half of the last decade, and the way in which the EU is taking North Macedonia for fools. So please do listen to that one too. But for now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce Bashar al-Assad. Hi, Jihad. How are you? Hi, Tom. Thank you. Fine, fine. I hope you are well, too. I'm very well. Jihad, we're talking about Bashar al-Assad today. He was born in Damascus in 1965 and was the son of somebody who would, I think it's fair to say, would change Syria forever. Who was Bashar al-Assad's father? Hmm. Interesting question. So uh, Hafez al-Assad was uh, so the president of Syria from 1970 to 2000. You could could argue that he is the, the, uh, so he's the longest serving head of state since Syria's independence. He was at the same time an extreme uh, brutal dictator. Uh, But he probably is the one also that he put an end to uh, quite a long era of political destabilization and stability rather in Syria since, it, it's, it's since the country's independence uh, until 1970, until he took power. He was the son of peasants, an army officer, uh, very much a son of his generation. So contrary to his son who was born in the city, in the capital, Hafez was born in a small village in the coastal um, mountains um, over Latakia. He took over power by force. He was a military officer, a member of a Ba'ath party, which was a socialist, a nationalist party. And uh, he managed actually to transform Syria, not only uh, to become a stable state, but also a major player across the uh, Middle East. Uh, famously, uh, British uh, journalist Patrick Seal had written a book in the early 1960s of Syria, and he uh, called the book The Struggle for Syria. He described the, uh, Syria as a country being very unstable and over which many regional and international players were, uh, you know, um, acting to control it. And then he wrote another book in 1990, which was essentially a biography of Hafez al-Assad which he called the struggle for the Middle East. And where basically he said, 
The struggle for Syria is over, Hafez Assad won it, and he transformed Syria into a major player in the Middle East region, controlling Lebanon, through his control of Lebanon having a major say in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and having built a big network of uh, uh, ties and relations with other regional actors, such as Iran. So uh, that was Hafez Assad. That's interesting. It sounds uh, first and foremost like quite a successful regime in some ways. But I think there's always been a caveat that Hafez al-Assad's regime was uh, pretty brutal. He was a very brutal dictator. He slaughtered thousands and thousands of civilians in the city of Hama in 1982 to keep control of power. He also ruled uh, a state which became increasingly corrupt. And um, when he passed away uh, in 2000, he was at the same time an extremely powerful and influential actor and player, but also someone who terrified his population. His uh, major opponent, Riyad Atirik, who stayed in prison for uh, in solitary confinement for uh, over 15 years, if I'm not wrong, called Syria the kingdom of silence. People were so terrified and afraid of speaking or saying anything. And if Syria is where it is today, it is to some extent a consequence of Hafez Assad's uh, policies, certainly. His, uh, uh, Hafez destroyed any space for public, uh, any public space for negotiation, for discussion. He destroyed any chance for uh, for the country having some, uh, if not democratic, because he was, even his predecessors were not democratic, of course, but even for any sort of, you know, other political actor except for him. So he was extremely, extremely brutal and you cannot uh, dissociate his rule from what is happening today in Syria. I think one of the things that demonstrates the totality uh, of the control he had on Syria is the fact that he um, intended for uh, Syria to become and indeed made eventually Syria a sort of almost a hereditary monarchy or certainly a hereditary presidency. Um, one of the interesting things about his son Bashar, um, the person that we're talking about principally today, is he wasn't supposed to be president. Um, Hafed's eldest son uh, died in a car crash in 1994 when Bashar was 29. What was Bashar doing at this point? And, and has he spoken much about the effect that his elder brother's death had on him? Just to go back to what you are saying, uh, Hafez made actually of Syria a hereditary republic. And that's probably the first uh, in the world or the very first in the world. And he almost set an example for other uh, dictators in the region and around, including, for instance, in Egypt, where Mubarak was also trying to push for his son to succeed him, or Gaddafi, who was also seeking uh, for his son to succeed him. So Hafez tried first with his first son, Basil, who, as you said, died in a car accident in Damascus. At the time, his younger brother, Bashar, was in the UK. He was uh, specializing, he was studying ophthalmology with the objective of being a doctor, so very far from politics or from the, for the military. And after Bassa's death, uh, Hafez asked Bashar to come back to Damascus, which indicates how far Hafez want, was willing to go to make sure that it was one of his children who was succeeding him. And in a way, it also reflects the failure of Hafez, that he was incapable of seeing the future of Syria outside uh, his own family and his own children. So Bashar was, a, was, a, was studying, was a doctor. He stayed, he had, when he was asked to come back to Damascus, he had been in uh, London for around 10 months. Certainly not enough to get much of British culture, to the extent that when he came back actually in Syria and when he became president, I do remember that his, the first interviews he gave, the questions that were asked to him in English had to be translated to him in Arabic for him to understand. That's intriguing. I, I was planning on asking you about this. I, I was going to suggest perhaps that it was quite a strong British connection. N not so much? 
You know, first of all, I mean, that's, you know, uh, the, the fact that uh, Bashar was, I mean, all these, uh, at one point when he took over power, uh, Western media and Western politicians would describe Bashar as being, you know, very uh, Westernized uh, and uh, having adopted some of the West liberal, um, if not policies, at least convictions. And in a way, if you want, that was portrayed as a means for a lot of countries to, well, first there was a good PR and communication campaign from the Syrian regime, which needed to build ties with the, with the West to, uh, for its economy and for a variety of reasons. We can talk about this later. But it was also a, a way, a justification for many in Europe to, uh, to explain why they were seeking to rebuild ties with Bashar. But obviously, when, first of all, you go to any country, to any other country than yours, when you are over 30 years of old, because when actually he was in the UK, he was 33. Your whole upbringing, your whole culture is the one from, you know, the one where you, the country you were in during your sure. teenage years and your, you know. And on top of that, he spent only a few months in the UK, barely enough to get used to the country, to get a few contacts, to learn a few things. Is this label of a, of a sort of British connection perhaps something that you could attribute more to his wife? Uh, his wife was uh, certainly a British uh, citizen, so she is British very much. But this label uh, was attributed to him actually before he got married. And while, while his wife then, if you want, uh, in increased a bit that, that uh, you know, played a role in increasing that label, if you want, or giving it more importance. Uh, initially, I think it was very much the idea behind it was, if you want um, to associate Bashar with the West in a way or another. And that suited both Bashar and Western countries that wanted to build ties with him. Of course, Asma uh, uh, played a role in that. Uh, ironically enough, I mean, today, you, would, you could argue that, uh, that uh, Asma has adopted the culture of the Assad regime uh, and has been influenced by the way it functions much more than it's her British upbringing. So it, it really worked the other way around. Hafez died in 2000. Bashar accordingly became president straight after. You've mentioned a couple of times in your responses that the West were quite keen to build ties with this new younger Syrian president. Um, can you give a bit of context to that? Why did the West want to build these ties? It, it, it suggests that relations had not been very good. Yes, of course. I mean, Hafez uh, had, I mean, Syria was, uh, since the uh, early 1960s, is part of the broader socialist bloc, right? It had socialist uh, economic policies, uh, uh, central planning. It was an ally of the Soviet Union. And um, so uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, Hafez tried to rebalance a bit his relations. Uh, but at the time Bashar arrived to power, you had, if you want, a, a number of factors that were encouraging at least the Syrians to build ties with the West and vice versa. What happened, if you want, uh, Tom, is that when the uh, Soviet bloc collapsed, Syria and a lot of other countries actually face a, a number of problems. Um, Cuba is a typical example, if you want. Cuba, Cuba's economy collapsed entirely after the fall of the Soviet Union. But Syria was saved by two factors which helped Hafez Assad gain time. First of all, the uh, Syrian government um, discovered oil, or rather uh, British and French companies discovered oil in the, north, in the Northeast, which enabled Syria to increase its oil production, increase its fiscal revenues, and so gain some times. In addition to that, you had the first Gulf War between uh, after Saddam invaded Kuwait, Syria aligned with the, the US, and what happened is that the many Gulf countries some Western countries and Japan provided significant financial help to the Syrian government. So if you want, the Syria did not have to face the impact of the collapse of the Soviet Union throughout most of the 1990s. Now, during the end of the 1990s, the situation had changed. Oil production was going down. Aid from the Gulf had largely dried, dried up. Syria's population was increasing enormously, very quickly. And the Syrian government knew it needed to liberalize, to change something, to attract foreign investment. At the same time, from the West, Syria was, if you want, 
Um, because as I told you, I mean, uh, thanks to, uh, if you want, but half the Assad policies made of Syria a very major player in the region. And everybody knew that if you wanted a peace deal between Syria, between the Middle East and Israel, you needed a Syrian-Israeli agreement. And Syria was also an ally of Iran, which opposed Israel. So if you want, for the West, Syria was a country, if you could bring Syria to your side, you changed significantly the map of the Middle East. It's important to understand that the map of the Middle East at the time was very different from today, with a powerful country such as Syria. As I said, even the Gulf countries did not build ties with Israel as long as Syria, uh, uh, you know, uh, did not uh, negotiate a peace deal with the, with the Israelis. So having Syria on your side was very important for many countries in the West, and the Syrians themselves needed the West to, for, uh, for financial, for investment, basically. Syria is a Muslim country. Um, the Assads, I think, would claim that they run a secular regime. Do, do are they secular? Is that a way that you would describe them, Jihad, or does that need some nuance? No, of course, it it needs nuance. Um, so Syria is part is a country which is part of the both Arab and Muslim world and of the Mediterranean civilization, if you want. Culturally, I'm talking. Uh, we should not forget that, I mean, today we see it, uh, we, we, may, we may think in these terms, but in the 1960s and 70s, when Hafez and the Ba'ath Party arrived to power, you were, it was a period of uh, decolonization, of socialist ideas, of struggle for the freedom of the people around the world. So Syria would ally with a lot of non-Muslim countries against Muslim countries if these Muslim countries were, say, pro-American. Mm? So the, you, you did not choose your alliances based on, you know, uh, whether the other country was necessarily a Muslim country or not. Now, having said that, Syria's society was probably, uh, I mean, yeah, Syria's population has some attributes of the broader uh, societies in the Muslim world, the relation between men and women, for instance, you have the cultural references. Damascus was the capital of the Umayyad Empire centuries ago. So also these played a role. You could describe Syria as a country where religion plays a relatively limited role. I mean, is, 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 is barely mentioned in the constitution of the country. So where society is relatively conservative and therefore some attitudes are conservatives, uh, social ones, I'm not sure of the political ones, you could describe it that way. So it was, it was not though secular in the very strict definition of the terms in the way the French would adopt it, in the sense that, for example, in the constitution that was adopted in 1973, uh, the Sharia was described as the main but not the only source of jurisdiction. Uh, the president, however, had to be a Muslim. Other than that, uh, in the political life, you had little formal uh, differentiation between Syrians, Muslim and non-Muslim. The constitution says nothing about the division of power. Uh, and you had a lot of, historically, a lot of major Syrian leaders who were Christians, for example. But what you had, however, is communities. And that's, that's quite different from being, having, adopting the Sharia, for example. So you had people for whom their religious community was relatively important. And so this is something you took into account when you were ruling the country. Meaning if you want people to be on your side, you have to take this factor into account. In the same way, for example, where they also took into account the geographic a distribution. So, for example, in every government, you would have to have a few guys from Aleppo, a few from Deir ez-Zor in the east, and you would have to have a few Christians and a few Druze and mostly Muslims. And so, so this was taken into account, even though it was not formalized. So, uh, and and the Sharia didn't play a real role, an important role. So, alcohol is freely uh, sold and drunk in the country. Christian uh, celebrations are official holidays for the government, for example. Um, so the, if you want the communitarian aspect, the sectarian aspect in a way is more important than the religious aspect per se. I hope I'm, I'm not sure if I'm clear enough. No, that, that's, that's certainly clear. I, 
I think what you're suggesting is that there are many, many different points of contestation and lines of division within this country. I think the thing that merits Assad's appearance on this podcast, which is mostly about controversial, contested world leaders, the reason everybody knows who Bashar al-Assad is, is the Syrian civil war. And we'll come to discussing the, the war in more detail in a second. But first, Assad was in power for about 10 years before the unrest that led to the civil war kicked off in 2011. The unrest didn't evolve in a vacuum. If you if you look at those 10 years, can you point to some trends that emerged across Bashar's time in power that led to this breaking point in 2011? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the important things we have to take into account is the fact that, you know, very early on you in this uh, podcast, you mentioned the fact that Bashar was born in Damascus. And I think what we have here is really, I mean, the death of Hafez and the arrival of Bashar also brought a generational change in the rule of power in, in Damascus. You had uh, before, you had Hafez and all these officers commanding the security services that were a bit from the same extraction than Hafez. They were also originally from the rural, from the countryside. They were from the Ba'ath Party. They were from the army and the security services. When Bashar came to power, so the security service did, did keep, uh, of course, uh, contro controlled completely uh, the, um, I mean, keep, are, are the leading power in the country. But you have, Bashar brought with him a number of people of his generation, the sons of the officers or of the Alawite senior officials in the government. These children, like Bashar, were born in Damascus, were largely disconnected from their countryside, wanted to do business, not to fight, wanted to go on, you know, to spend, uh, were also the sons of the neoliberal age, if you want, in a, certain, uh, in a certain sense. Now, the arrival of Bashar coincided, or if you want, not coincided, Bashar pushed for a liberalization of the economy at the beginning and for a reduction in political pressure. So there was some... The general atmosphere in Syria was lighter than during the Hafez al-Assad days. Uh, you had, you could find in Syria a lot more consumer products and items. It was easier to open a business. Myself, to give you a short, simple example, I moved back to Syria. I never really grew in Syria, but my father left Syria decades ago. But I went to Syria in 2005. A lot of Syrians from the upper middle classes who were abroad, came back to Syria. However, what also happened uh, is that you had part of the policies that Bashar pursued was a, a reduction in the involvement of the state in supporting the farming sector, uh, a reduction in the role of the state as a major, um, how, how would I put it, enabling, if you want, people to climb the social ladder, which was something very important previously. And so the reduction of the presence of the state in a variety of areas did create some discontent. For instance, there is a lot of reference to the drought that affected Syria in the period between 2007-2009. And a lot of people attribute the beginning of the uprising to that. But actually the drought, a major drought, uh, came on top of a significant reduction in state support to a large segment of the, of the country. Uh, so that, that played, I think, an important role in the deterioration in social and economic conditions in the country. So there was a sort of prolonged austerity period, which sort of became the normal level of state intervention in the end. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly, you, you worded it properly. That's exactly what happened. This does not mean that in the cities you had some improvement in, uh, at least, as I said, for the upper middle classes. And there was also, if you want, I think there were maybe some expectations also. I mean, if, if you have to go back to how the uprising began, I think the, 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 there have been uh, expectations of more significant improvement that did not really materialize, even uh, in particular in terms of political 
liberalization that never really materialized. At the beginning of Bashar al-Assad, there were some suggestions that he would open up the political space, which never really occurred. So you have austerity on the, in the, uh, on the one hand, you have a political system that is not flexible at all. Uh, and I think all of that, if you want, helped explain a bit what, what happened in 2011. And if you look at the late 2000s, the years immediately preceding the start of the civil war, where was Assad's relationship with the West by this stage? Hmm. Um, well, his, his relation uh, with the West improved significantly in the first five years of his rule. He visited an enormous number of countries, uh, France, the UK, Spain, uh, to the extent that uh, even Putin, uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, when he was asked about his ties to Bashar, he was, he was, um, he was arguing that actually Bashar visited the West more than he did visit Moscow, which is not wrong, although it doesn't say much of the, the current situation. But anyway, now you had one moment, which was 2005, when the Syrians... Uh, when Rafiq al-Hariri, the Lebanese PM, died in a car bomb. The attack is uh, widely attributed to the Syrian regime, although eventually it is Hezbollah um, commanders that were condemned. But, I mean, the Syrians are quite clearly involved into that. And that led to a serious de deterioration in uh, Bashar's ties with France, which is a major actor in the Levant region, and more broadly in the, in the Middle East. And that situation stayed that way for a couple of years, after 2007-2008, and the French sought to build back ties with the Syrian regime, so their relations had slightly improved again. So he was certainly seen, if you look at investment, for instance, ties were certainly good. Uh, and so the, the relations were, were relatively good, actually. The Syrians were also even considering signing an association agreement with the EU, which is a specific type of agreement tying uh, Mediterranean countries with the, with the, with the EU. So the, you could say that they were relatively good, actually. If we turn to the unrest, then, this obviously takes place within the wider context of the Arab Spring. What were the first rumblings of uh, disquiet in Syria? What happened? Mm. Well, that was an ex ex uh, you know a, a moment. I was I was uh, in Damascus myself uh, the, when the uprising began, and it was certainly a moment of uh, great excitement and enormous hope. Really, uh, the uprising actually, uh, if you want, the first event uh, was a, a protest in front of the Libyan embassy uh, in, on March 15, 2011, in Damascus. It was a silent, actually, a sit-in rather than a protest. Then you had a demonstration in uh, the city of Dara on March 18, 2011, which was a Friday, and where six people were shut down by the security services. So that created outrage. Uh, and then there was the, uh, during the burial of the six people who died, another number of, another uh, men were also shot and killed. The first few weeks of the protests uh, were, did not ask for a fall of the regime, contrary to Egypt or Tunisia. And that's because people were so terrified, actually. In Syria, it was still unbelievable that people would dare go to the streets. Even in February 2011, uh, Bashar al-Assad gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal when he was asked about the possibility of the uprising spreading to Syria. And he was answering there is no way it's going to spread here because our position towards the Arab-Israeli conflict is close to what our people uh, think and be, be, you know, believe in. So why are they going to protest against us? In other words, he was blaming the Egyptians or the, uh, the Tunisians for being closer to the West or the Israelis, if you want. So the first few weeks, so no uh, demand for the fall of the regime, but for the reform of the regime. Um, and then gradually with the uh, repression increasing and people realizing that uh, the regime was in no real mood for compromise, you had demand for a fall of the regime. It's also striking to mention that among the first few uh, buildings that were burned down were the local offices in Dara, which had actually suffered from uh, Dara, if you want, Tom, and this is um, important to take into account, Dara was a historical stronghold of the Ba'ath Party. It's a farming, it's mostly a rural area where agriculture was important. 
and where the a lot of actually officials, civilian officials from the government came from Dara. For example, the former and the current Syrian minister of foreign affairs are from Dara, uh, and they are mostly Sunnis. But it is the area that lost most, or among the area that lost a lot from the change in policies of the uh, by the by the regime. Um, so, so one of the first buildings that was burned down by protesters were the local branch of Syriatel. Syriatel being one of the two mobile phone operators, and which, which the company was owned by Rami Mahlouf, who is who, Mahlouf, who is the maternal cousin of Bashar al-Assad, and he's probably one of the most hated business figures in Syria at the time. So it was very symbolic that the company's uh, local branch would be burned down. Um, but the, the protests were actually overwhelmingly peaceful. I mean, there was obviously nobody was shooting anywhere except for the regime killing down uh, protesters, but protesters were not holding arms or anything. And so gradually it, it escalated. Uh, you had more and more protests in other parts of the country, uh, including in Damascus. So that's how it all began. This was 2011. The, yeah. the sort of protests, uh, riots eventually sort of begin to take on the form of a, of a, of a more conventional uh, civil war through the rest of 2011 and into 2012. When was it, do you think, that the West begin to really sour on Assad? Um, that's a good question, actually. I mean, uh, one of the first statements coming from the US administration at the time, in March or April, was from Hillary Clinton, who was the Secretary of State at the, at the time, saying that Bashar was someone, was a guy we could work with. And if you want, a lot of Western countries were uh, at the same time, uh, you know, asking the regime to change its behavior, but were also quite worried about how the situation was evolving because it was quite violent quite very quickly in the sense of, I mean, the repression was violent. Quickly, as I said, from the first day, the regime shot people, which is something you didn't see in other countries. Even the Turks that were at the time were very close to, to, to the Syrian regime. Davutoglu, who was the Turkish foreign minister, visited Damascus, I think, something like 15 times between March 2011 and August 2011. So the Europeans began putting sanctions on the regime in May or June 2011. But there were still really sanctions against the head of state, the, the head of the security services. And they were still pushing for the regime to make some concessions, to talk to people. Uh, and, you know, I was there and I think a lot of, uh, I, was, I talked to a lot of diplomats at the time. They were quite, they weren't really sure of what to do. They were also, like everyone else, very surprised by the fact that the events, I mean, the protests took place in Damascus. A lot of people didn't think that this could ever happen. And uh, they start putting some small pressure on the regime to make some reforms. And gradually, gradually things evolved. And as they thought there, there was no turning back, uh, they eventually took much more serious, uh, you know, sanctions against it. Yes, and I, I think from memory, the year 2013 was quite a significant one for various reasons. The, the violence in Syria got considerably worse over the first sort of six or eight months of that year. And in, I think, August 2013, David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, suggested or, or sort of uh, brought to the, the table the idea of, of some sort of intervention in Syria. Um, and he lost a vote in the British House of Commons to, to gain authority for that. Um, why was David Cameron and, to some extent, Barack Obama the American president at the time, why were they angling for a more direct intervention by this stage? Okay, um, thank you for asking me this question, Tom, because it reminds me that a lot of people today, I mean, things that I take for obvious uh, uh, are not necessarily obvious today. What happened in August 2013 is that the Syrian regime attacked with chemicals uh, one of the suburbs of Damascus. As you said, by, 20, by the summer of 2013, the conflict had gone much more violent. Uh, the opposition had armed, taken up weapons. Uh, half of Aleppo was under the control of the opposition. And there was really a war. Uh, you could then call it really a civil war. Uh, so what happened in August 2013 is that the regime bombed with chemicals 
the uh, uh, the Ghouta, which is the eastern suburb of Damascus, killing more than a thousand people, I mean, a very large number of civilians. Until then, Barack Obama and the U.S. administration had said, we will not intervene in Syria at any cost, except if the regime uses chemicals, chemical weapons. Chemical weapons are our red line. And if that happens, we are going to intervene. And so what happened in the summer of 2013 is that following the attack, a lot of people thought the Americans would react. The intervention in the case of Syria was never anywhere close to any the classic way of intervention in the sense of sending troops or anywhere close to that. The idea was that the Americans and other Western uh, countries, allies, would bomb some specific sites of the Syrian army to make clear that you know there were limits the regime could not go beyond. So the David Cameron put to vote uh, in the House of Commons a, a, a decision resolution not not to send British troops but to intervene military to, to use aircrafts basically to bomb and he the vote was negative. The French, however, were very much ready to go and bomb, and Obama. Unfortunately for Syria, because I think this is really a very important moment, the Syrian conflict, and it has some repercussions, I think, up to today in other conflict. We can talk about this later. But eventually, the U.S. administration was never really interested in the Syrian conflict. For the Americans, Syria was really not an important uh, you know, uh, conflict. And the Americans tried to buy time a lot. And so Obama delayed, delayed, delayed his decision until eventually the Russians came forward and said, well, uh, let's uh, rather than you attacking, let's negotiate with the Syrian regime and force the reg- Syrian regime to give up his chemical weapons. Which uh, so the Russians eventually uh, reached a deal with the Americans, which were really expecting something, if you want, to relieve them from their commitment to bomb in case the, uh, the regime crosses red line. So what happened eventually that the, the the Syrian gave up most, although apparently not all their weapons. The U.S. never attacked, and what happened was just. Uh, the Syrian regime, uh, the Syrian uh, conflict evolving into, you know, full-fledged war across all the country with the rise, you know, with the expansion of the Islamic State and and everything else. Well, that's the next question I wanted to ask you. I mean, this is the thing that makes the Syrian conflict both so interesting and so confusing, is that there are, there's, there's, Certainly more than two sides, um, definitely three, and many would argue more than three. And the third side that is in this conflict sort of emerged, I think, mostly after August 13, which was, which was ISIS, the Islamic State. The British and the Americans eventually, after the terrorist attacks in Paris in November 2015, um, decided that they wanted to con- uh, that they wanted to conduct airstrikes in Syria, and this time the British Parliament gave David Cameron their acquiescence to do so. Um, in a speech to the House of Commons at that point, he famously claimed that there were seventy thousand moderate rebels that were awaiting Western help in Syria. Um, it was a claim that bore a lot of resemblance to Blair's. WMD in launch in 45 minutes claim before the invasion of Iraq in 2002. Uh, can, can you go a bit more into who the opposition actually were? Can, do you think that you can pull out any sort of real coherence to this opposition to Assad? Um, no, I think you can. I mean, the problem, Tom, of course, is that today we are looking at the conflict from the current lens and we, you know, we fail to see how things evolve. Uh, then, as I said, I mean the 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 uh, the decision by the Americans not to react to the chemical attack was a major turning point in the conflict because eventually, what did that say? Obama basically told Assad, "You can do whatever you want with your population. We don't we don't we don't care about it. Do whatever you want. We don't care. But please don't use the chemicals because that would force me to do something." So if you want, help me not to intervene, if you want. And, and, and what happened, I think Assad's chemicals attack were a way of testing the Americans. He got the answer, but he also understood clearly that he could move ahead with an escalation uh, against the opposition. And the opposition at the same time understood that there was no hope from the West. And if you want, there was really a collapse of most 
uh, non-radical Islamist opposition groups in 2013, in the end of 2013, of which there were many. They were not structured in a single uh, army, if you want. We would call them the Free Syrian Army, but they were comprised of a variety of groups, which were, as the Syrian population is overwhelmingly, relatively conservative religiously, but with no specific Islamic agenda. Some of them did have one, but they were, I mean, if you want the ed evidence from people researching the area does not indicate that the uh, organization with a radical Islamist uh, agenda were really the majority of the groups, far from that. But the collapse of the, um, the decision of the Americans not to intervene actually strengthened enormously the most radical groups, which basically, whose discourse was basically, there is no hope with the West. The only hope is radical Islam. That's the only way we'll bring down these other, uh, you know, uh, we we'll bring down the regime. So a, a lot of people actually left the opposition groups uh, during that period of time. Now, in 2014, what you had, uh, moderate rebels, I don't know what that means. I think what he meant to say was non-jihadi, non-takfiri groups, organizations that do not have a global Islamic agenda. And I think it was actually the case, and I think it is still the case actually today, of a wide variety. You, have, you do have some Islamic groups, non-takfiri. You have neither Islamic, non-takfiri groups. And you have the most radical groups, of course. A slightly different question to ask, though, would be not just whether these people are moderate, and I, 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 I think... The, the whole point of that, of why that has become famous is because of how mushy it sounds, moderate, you know, 70,000 moderate rebels. The, the other question that would need to be asked, though, is do you think that there was a way in which the West could have intervened in the conflict in a way that would have had a reasonable chance of supporting these people to the point where they could actually effectively oppose and, I suppose, eventually overthrow yeah, I think uh, to give you a very basic example, Tom, in 2013, I was in Beirut at the time, and we had a lot of information from people I know that I'm talking of the period just after the chemical attack. And as we were waiting an American uh, attack on uh, um, Syrian regime, uh, uh, Syrian army bases, there were a lot of reports of Syrian officers sending their family to the coast of panic among the Syrian regime. I do think uh, an attack by the American and the French, two or three days of bombing, which to tell the, the uh, message to us that there are limits to what you can do, now you negotiate. And I think at that point, you certainly had the means to force the regime into making significant concessions. To be, I mean, I can give you another example, which to justify this, in 2012, when for the first time the, the UN had a role uh, in negotiating uh, a deal, the Syrian regime did accept uh, the initiative by the UN, which would have eventually, which theoretically at the time, could have eventually pushed, pushed it to significant concessions because at the, in 2012, the regime did feel very weak. In other words, what I'm saying is that when you want to fight an enemy uh, uh, and force it into some compromise, you have to, and he it does not. And he does not want to negotiate. You have to for, you have to weaken him, to weaken him significantly. Uh, so you, you didn't need at all to to fight the regime and to force uh, a, a, a military uh, a military fights over Damascus, over the control of Damascus. But you force the regime into negotiating. You weaken him into a negotiation, and then you get him to the table. And that was certainly very much possible uh, at the time. But this was really a lost opportunity. And then it became much more complicated to do anything. I think the ideal solution really up to this day is to weaken the regime, to force it to negotiation, not to destroy the regime and certainly not to destroy the state as the Americans did in Iraq. And we all know the consequences of that. But the big problem, Tom, if you want, and that was a big debate in 2013, is that people, a lot of people in the West, for them, the example of intervention is Iraq. Was Iraq, yeah. Yeah. So you intervene, you are going to get Iraq. I so saw we don't intervene anywhere. Well, if you, if you do intervene, you get Iraq. If you don't intervene at all, you get Syria today. You see? And that's how you have to look at it. It's a good line. I want to ask you 
about the the other actor in this, which is or the other sort of domestic actor in this, which is ISIS. I think a very a, a big problem that the West had in Syria was that they never really decided what they wanted to achieve there. Not really in 2013, nor in in 2015. They were always or eventually sort of nominally anti-Assad, both anti-Assad and anti-ISIS. As somebody who's a, who's sort of looking at this from the outside. ISIS, I think, pose a larger and and scarier threat than Assad. Mm. I can understand that as a Syrian, you might not feel the same way about that. Do you think that this civil war was, from the West's point of view, a choice between Assad and ISIS? Uh, no, no, of course it wasn't. I mean, uh, and uh, I, of course, do understand what you say. And uh, to, uh, if you want, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French uh, president, famously said, uh, "ISIS is uh, our enemy; Bashar is the enemy of the Syrian people." Which I think was a mistake from him, but anyway, that's what he said. But quite clearly, in terms of immediate impact on the West. Uh, the short-term immediate impact. I mean, ISIS did bomb uh, European capitals, you know, did kill, uh, you know, European young men and women who were, you know, uh, partying. And so this is understandable. The real issue, Tom, here is how you look in the, the, the timeline, if you want, and how, what you are really looking at in the, in the medium to long term. For a very long time, there was in, an investment in, uh, in Europe on uh, strong regimes controlling their population, what is called stability, if you want. Basically, you have a guy whom you can call and you can ask to do this or that, and it controls the population. And uh, clearly what happened in the Arab world in the past decade, which is fundamentally very transformational for the, the societies, is extremely violent and has had a lot of consequences, of course, foremost on there on the population there, but also on the West through uh, the refugee, uh, for instance, or the bomb of ISIS. I don't think this the policy of controlling the population of the Mediterranean through brutal regime is a long term solution for the West. And we have seen the consequences now. I mean, the after all the uprisings and the consequence of the uprising which are terrible are a consequence also to some extent of the brutality of the rules of those that are ruling these countries but also if you like look at other ways i mean the the big refugee flow is to some extent a consequence of isis to some extent as i was saying a consequence of the collapse of the i mean if you want of the extreme brutality of the conflict which left no opportunity i do think that in the long term, and this is a, a difficult political sell in the West, because, of course, the horizon is always the next election. So it's always two, three or four years for most politicians, because that's how politics works here. But in the long term, there is an objective interest in, uh, in, in the rule of state in these countries, in stable uh, societies built on, you know, the rule of state, the rule of law, sorry. I meant, I said the rule of state, I meant the rule of law. Uh, so countries being ruled by law and not by brutal force is my understanding the long term a long term um, asset and, and interest of the west you have to accept that these countries being your neighbors moving from one stage to another is going to take time and create instability and that you are going to face one one day or another the consequences but i would doubt very much I mean, if you just look, Tom, at the level of the population growth in this part, this part of the world, I doubt very much that you are not going to face some additional troubles in these regions, and you won't be able to solve them, to end them, with, only, with the only answer being brutality, brute force. You know, you can't just be brutal with the populations. You need to find a solution to make political concession, to open the public space, uh, the political space. And this can be done only, and that's really the interest of the West, 
and that can only be done through political change. So I do think it's also the interest of the West that these regimes be removed. I think it is the interest of the West and also the countries. I mean, revolu revolution, Tom, are always... Nobody has an interest in revolutions, by the way. We all have an interest in, in you know, in gradual change. Refo revolutions happen because all other ways of changing a system yeah. are closed. So then it, 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 you know, it erupts and explodes. So I think that's how we have to look at it. We really have to push these regimes to reform, but reform significantly, change significantly. Uh, and that means giving up power, accept, accepting that rulers are accountable. So no, I do think that, that, that even the West has a very strong interest of get, in getting rid of Assad and other brutal dictators. But the consequences will be felt long term. <laughs> Yeah, and many turns in the road along the way. The, the, the stasis that the West sort of stumbled into over Syria also attracted another major power in the world into that region, which was Russia. Um, you obviously mentioned that Hafez's regime was a, a sort of client of the Soviet Union. Looking forward to the present day, given what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Putin was often seen to have had a sort of foreign policy success in Syria. If Assuming that you think that he did have a foreign policy success there, do you think that when the history books are written about the war in Ukraine, historians will see in Syria and the fact that the West sort of fumbled its cards over Syria. Do you think that people will look back and see that as a cause for the war in Ukraine, that this was such a great psychological victory for Vladimir Putin, that he felt that he could test the West further? Yeah, interesting. Now, just to make uh, clear, to make, yeah, to make it clearer, Tom, uh, Hafez uh, was not really a client of the Soviet. He was an ally. And I'm saying this because really he had succeeded in gaining real autonomy from the Soviet Union. He was, he was a strong ally, but he had real mar margins of maneuvers. Ob obviously, uh, uh, Syria is a major politi political success of uh, Vladimir Putin's. Syria, or rather Russia's control, or Russia's, uh, Russia's presence in Syria, is what makes Russia again a global player. Because if you want, until Russia... Until uh, sorry, until 2015 and the and the, interve the Russian intervention in Syria, uh, Moscow only intervened in very in the close neighborhood in countries around it: Georgia, uh, Abkhazia, uh, the uh, Chechnya. Uh, Syria was the first time in decades since the fall of the Soviet Union that Russia intervened in a country far from its borders, and in a country in a conflict which is very internationalized even before it intervened. So this, made of, this makes of Russia a, a global player again, in a certain sense, and not only a regional player. If the Russians lose Syria, they become again a regional player, as I think either Obama or other American officials had, had, had mentioned it, a, a, a mid-sized player. The control of, of Syria made them a global, because now they're present in the Mediterranean. They have a, a border they border uh, a NATO country from its southern border, which is Turkey. Turkey is a NATO country, and Syria is a border. Uh, you know, is on its border. Uh, they have uh, Syria is on the border with Israel, and also a major player in, in in a certain way in the U.S. You know how the influence of the pro-Israeli lobbies in the Congress, uh, a major player in the whole Middle East region, which is a, a, obviously the main center of oil and gas production. So Putin's uh, control over Syria made of its, of its country again a global player. So that's one aspect. The other aspect you are mentioning is, of course, very true. Although Syria was not the only example, was but one of many cases where Putin saw his intervention in another country not generating any reaction from the West, to some extent even being welcomed by the West, if you want. Uh, and and uh, um, uh, because in a sense today the Russians can negotiate with the Iranians and that can be perceived positively by some actors in the West. But if you have uh, 
if you add Putin's intervention in Syria to his later intervention in Kazakhstan, the most recent one, uh, you understand that, of course, Syria was an important uh, act in the Russians' belief that their interventions in, in foreign, in other countries, would not generate any reaction from the West. Of course, Putin made his terrible mistake of invading Ukraine, because, of course, Ukraine is a totally different uh, scene, if you want, than Syria. But, of course, Syria was, was very, very important in that. It was also, of course, don't forget, and uh, the Russians said it very cynically, Syria was a scene for them to try their weapons and sell them around the world. And I'm sure they tried many weapons, they tested their many weapons that they're using now again in, uh, in Ukraine. It was also a scene where Putin tested his capacity to influence local actors. You should see the number of instances where Putin really practically humiliated Bashar physically in front of the TV screens. And so it was really a test for many, many other things, Syria. To bring this conversation back to Assad, Syria has obviously been through a, a, a dreadful more than decade of civil war. The, the civil war isn't, isn't over. What sort of country is Assad presiding over? I think it's basically assumed that he's here to stay now, at least in the short term. But what sort of country has he got left? Mm, good question. You remember, Tom, I was telling you that uh, half the Assad's arrival to power, accession to power, uh, and his strategic perception of the of Syria's position in the in the region enabled him to end what we used to call the, to call the struggle for Syria. Basically, Syria being a scene where other actors played. He transformed Syria into an actor into, in other countries in the Middle East. I would argue that Bashar has brought back his country to the struggle for Syria. He has, if you want, basically, first of all, he has lost control over Lebanon. We didn't talk about this, of course, we didn't have time to. But he, in 2005, the, Syrians were, the Syrian army was forced to withdraw from Lebanon, which was a major, major failure of the Syrian foreign policy because control over Lebanon was probably the most significant success of his father, Hafez. So he lost Lebanon in 2005. And then since 2011, he lost control over large parts of Syria. And now he is largely dependent on Russian and Iranian influence and control over the parts of Syria that he's, he's still in charge of nominally. As I told you, he is frequently humiliated by Putin, but he can't do anything because he knows how much he depends on him. So Hafez uh, Bashar, sorry, controls now around two-thirds of the geographic, Syria's uh, geographic area, and probably around the same rate in terms of population. He has left a country which is largely destroyed, whose social fabric is unfortunately largely destroyed. He is leaving a country uh, that he, as you said, in the short term, he's, he's most likely uh, to remain in power. I have more doubts about his capacity to remain in power in the longer term, but that's a different story, of course. Uh, I think it's a country which it will be very difficult to rebuild uh, in terms of its infrastructure, but also in terms of a national project. The Syrians have to create a new national project. And I think we are, we are going to face many challenges doing that. I suppose the significance of what you're saying is that in some ways he's not really in power at all, is he? I'm not sure if you can say that. I, I think it would... He is now one of many other local actors in Syria, while he was by very far... I mean, there was no one contesting his role or influence in any way in 2011. Now, of the local Syrian actors, he is the most powerful because he's probably... He controlled most land, among others. But as all uh, uh, other Syrian actors, they're all dependent on foreign support and influence. And in a way, Tom, you called the Syrian war a civil war, which I think is to some extent correct. But you can also call it a regional and global conflict through proxies, through local proxies. I think this is also one aspect of the conflict. Shihad, thank you very much. That's been a fascinating uh, discussion of, of, a, of a man, but also of, of, a, of a, a civil war, which has, uh, you know, defined... Uh, 
you know the world in my lifetime certainly so far uh if people want to read more about uh syria or if people want to follow you and your the work that you do where can they go Right, thank you. So I, I published two websites, one called the Syria Report, which is uh, which has a paywall, unfortunately, and which is de dedicated to the economy, Syria's economy. We look at it from different angles. And you have another website, which is much more accessible, which is the Syrian Observer, where we translate the Syrian press, opposition and regime into English. We publish every day, it's free of charge. And I think uh, it, it is a very useful way to get uh, you know introduced to, to Syria. Great. Jihad, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and, for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.